Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. For you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
Let's pray. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Have any of you ever been in an entirely chaotic airport where it was hard to make sense of anything? Maybe because of delays or weather or, or some sort of phenomenon that had happened, everything got backed up. And if you would take the perspective of, let's say, somebody visiting from another planet and just drop into this, you would wonder, what in the world is going on here? There are people with large items on wheels running to and fro, then handing them over to other people who throw them onto a conveyor belt and send them who knows where. And then people uh, waiting in line, and then people lined up at counters yelling at the person behind the counter, and, and, uh, and people on cell phones, and, uh, and, and people sitting down, and people lying down asleep on the ground. It's, 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 it looks like chaos. It looks like chaos. And if you were to go outside, you'd see men and women scurrying all over the place, carrying baggage. You'd see planes lined up. You'd see planes parked. You'd see some planes in hangars over here and over there. And you'd say, what in the world is this? It looks like complete chaos. Uh, And if you look at the planes, you probably couldn't figure out why in the world they're doing what they're doing. But if somebody said to you, come with me. Come with me. I want to show you something. And they took you up into the control tower and uh, you were able to overhear what was going on there. And if you could understand the kind of signals and language they were using, the specialty language, you'd say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why this plane's there, why that plane's over here, while these are lined up over there, while these are coming in and those are going out. You'd say, oh, I understand. And now I understand what's going on inside as well because... People are trying to get to these planes. Others are coming off of them. This one's backed up. That's why people are waiting here. And It would begin to make sense. Why? Because you would see the master plan. You would go up to the tower and you would see those who are in control of what is happening. That's what we have here. We saw a vision in chapter 1. And then we read seven letters to seven churches. And how were things for those seven churches? Was everything going smoothly for those seven churches? No, in some cases it looked like nothing was going smoothly for those seven churches. They were beleaguered uh, from without and from within. They had problems. All of these seven churches had problems. And in some cases it looked chaotic. And so, one speaks to John and says, Come up here. Come up here. I want to show you something. And he, he takes him up into the control tower where John gets a glimpse of what's really going on in the universe. And that's what we see in these visions. And what we have here is the second of the bookends. We saw in the chapter 1 the first vision of one like a son of man. And John fell down and felt like he was, was a dead man before this vision. And... He was lifted up, and then he was given the commission to give these letters to the churches from this one like a son of man. And we saw that these seven letters, these messages to the churches, flowed out of that initial vision. But now we have a a closing vision, the second bookend of these letters. 
And this second bookend, after we've seen all the chaos in these churches, this second bookend takes John up even farther, because John says in the first vision in chapter 1, I was on the island of Patmos. So he saw a vision somehow, we don't know how this worked exactly, but he saw a vision while he was on the island, and now he's getting called to go up, to go up higher. That's what it says in chapter 1, verse 4. It says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. So he has now a heavenly vision, and he's told that he will see what must take place. That probably refers to the rest of Revelation, all the rest of the visions that John receives. So that's, uh, that's what is going to take place. And this, this alternation between vision of the Son of Man, and then the churches on earth, and now a vision in heaven, this is in keeping with the whole rhythm of the book of Revelation. We, we cut to the earth, and we find that the Christians are being cut down, they're being persecuted, they're being killed, they're being, uh, they're being chased. Uh, and then we, we go up to heaven, and we get a vision of what's really going on in the universe. And having been refreshed with that vision of what's going on, then we come back down to earth again. And now we're able to continue on, no matter what might be happening here. And that's what we find. We're taken up in this vision, and then in chapter 6, we go back down to the earth again, having been refreshed with what we found in chapters 4 and 5. And this is one vision, chapters 4 and 5, but it has two movements and there are two different foci. In the first, in the first uh, section, chapter 4, the focus is on God, who sits on the throne. And then in chapter 5, there's a focus on the Lamb. The focal point of the first vision is a throne. And in keeping with the prohibition of images, the second commandment says that we should not make images of God. And it looks like John doesn't want us to create a mental image of God either, that we might worship some sort of a, an image. He doesn't describe the one who sits on the throne. He simply just says there was one seated on the throne. But he describes all that was going on around him. In verse 2 it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then it says, And he who sat there had the appearance, and here he, he, he brings out images of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And by the way, we see this sort of mixture in Revelation, and, and, and there, are, there are impossible mixtures. Uh, uh, a, a rainbow that looks like an emerald. How does that work? Rainbows have a number of colors, and emerald is green, and so it, it, it mashes together images that if we really tried to create it uh, in the physical world, it would not be possible. But he's, he's throwing together a number of images, and then in verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw in chapter 1 that the seven spirits of God are really the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold Spirit of God that is present with all the churches. And then before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So he never tells us what the, the one on the throne looks like. He just tells all this, this image around him. And what he does here is he pulls out images from all through the Old Testament 
and he sticks them together in sometimes incongruous ways. He, he brings in the rainbow, which was visible after the flood. He brings in lightning and thunder that we heard on Mount Sinai when the law was given. He brings in the lampstand with seven branches that was located in the tabernacle and in the temple. He brings in the sea. And there was a sea, a big basin before the temple, and it was called the sea. And that was before the temple and the tabernacle, a basin of water. He brings in some of the the stones that were on the breastplate of the high priest who stood before God in the tabernacle. And he brings in many elements of chapter 1 of Ezekiel, particularly the creatures. Now, it might be possible, and I'm sure some have done this, and it would be helpful and interesting. It might be possible to try to trace out every one of these little elements and say, what does it mean? But we might, in doing that, lose sight of the forest for the trees. What we should probably do, especially if we're going through rather rapidly, is simply try to take in this vision in keeping with the idea of Revelation as a picture book, and say, what is this picture communicating? And I think there's no doubt about what it's communicating, is there? It's communicating awesomeness. It's communicating might. It's communicating majesty. It's communicating power. In addition to these inanimate objects, we have two sets of creatures. And these are unusual creatures. We have the 24 elders, and we have the four living creatures. Now, the 24 elders, who were the 24 elders? Well, I think they were probably some sort of angelic creatures, some sort of uh, uh, creatures that were angels of some, some kind. Uh, I, normally, or in the past, I had thought that they were human because they're called elders, and we think about elders or presbyters, uh, they are human representatives, uh, leaders of the people of God. But uh, when we see how they function later in the story, they function more like angels. In chapter 7, they are they're intermediaries of revelation, and so it looks like these are angelic creatures. However, However, they may reflect eldership on earth as well. Um, Later in the book, in chapter 21, when we have the description of the New Jerusalem, it talks about the 12 tribes of the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. And if you put 12 and 12 together, what do you get? 24. Also, if you look back in 1 Chronicles and you see how the priests were arranged uh, in their service, they were arranged in groups, in groups of, or rather in 24 groups, 24 groups. And so we find 24 showing up as representative of priests and also representative of people of God in the Old Testament and people of God in the New Testament. So if they're angelic creatures, but they're reflecting things on earth, that shouldn't be a surprise to us, should it? We've already seen that, haven't we? Do you remember that each of the letters was directed to whom? To the angel of the church in wherever. But then we saw that the letter was directed to whom? It was directed to the church. And so we find this parallel between the angel and the church. 
And now we find another parallel between these 24 angelic elders and the 24 on earth tribes and apostles representing the people of God. We find that also in the case of the four living creatures. And these characters are even more bizarre than the 24 elders. They have a mix of characteristics from Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, they have the wings from Isaiah chapter 6. They have uh, different faces, and uh, there are four of them. Their faces look like they could represent the most powerful classes of animals. Uh, what is the most powerful of the wild animals? We would think of a lion, perhaps. The most powerful of the domesticated animals? We might think of an ox. Uh, the most majestic of the flying creatures? We could think of our flying eagle. And what is the most magnificent of all the creatures? Human beings. So we could see that these are representative of four classes of creatures on earth. And so once again we see a parallel. So these are angelic creatures, but they, they're reflected on earth in the created order. And what do they do? What do they do? They praised God. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, around the throne, they praised God. And they praised Him for two things. If you look at verse 8, they praised Him for His characteristics, for what He was like. They praised Him because He was holy. And this song comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so they praise Him for His holiness. They praise Him for His might. He is the Almighty. And they also praise Him for His eternity, who it was and is and is to come. So He is the one who is holy. That is, He is separate from us. He is pure. He is almighty, all-powerful, and He always was, and He is, and He always will be. So they praise Him for those characteristics. And then, in addition, they praise Him as the Creator. If you look at verse 11, in verse 11 it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And here this is an interesting repetition. He said you created all things, but you didn't create them out of pre-existent matter. You just didn't find some matter and reform it. He said, you made it exist. You brought it into existence. You created everything out of nothing. Out of nothing. And so they praise Him for His characteristics and they praise Him for being the Creator of all things. That's chapter 4. That's the worship service. That's the, the first movement of the worship service. But now we have something of a dramatic interlude. Because... John, as he's watching this scene, he notices that the one who's seated on the throne has in his right hand, right hand emphasizing authority and power, in his right hand, a scroll that was written, curiously, normally scrolls were just written on the inside, but this one was written on the inside and the outside. There's a precedent for that back in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And in addition, this, this scroll was sealed with seven seals. So nobody could look into it. 
Nothing was visible from the outside. And there was a, a question that a mighty angel asked about this scroll. He threw out the question and said, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to, to open this scroll and look into it? What is this scroll? What's written in this scroll? Well, there are a number of ideas about that, but I think the best explanation is, it's the plan of God for the ages. And if you want to know what's written in the scroll, just keep reading the book of Revelation. But this question is, who can break the seal? And who can open the scroll? That is, who is worthy to execute God's plan for the ages? Who is the one who is worthy to bring this plan, this sealed up plan, to pass? Who can break these seals? Who can open the scroll? Who can put it into practice? Who can execute God's plan? And the angel throws out the question, and guess what? They didn't find anyone. No one, it says, and to emphasize the no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, verse 3, chapter 5, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John said, when I heard that, I wept loudly. And now we understand why he wept loudly. If this scroll was the plan for the ages, this was God's plan for the ages, and no one could put it into execution, no one could make it happen, that's tragic. If God has a plan and there's no one worthy for this plan to be brought about, John says, I I wept loudly. But then one of the elders said, weep no more. Weep no more because they found someone Someone who was able to break the seal and and open. He said, weep no more. Verse 5, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Two images here. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. If we go back all the way to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 49 Here Jacob, Jacob also called Israel, was about to die, and he was blessing each of his twelve sons. And to Jake, to Judah, he says, Genesis chapter 49, 9 and 10, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So which tribe was going to be the the lion-like tribe? Which tribe was going to be the royal tribe? Which tribe was going to be the tribe of kingship? It was going to be the tribe of Judah. And then he adds to that, he says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then he calls him the root of David. And this is a a play on uh, a reference back in Isaiah chapter 11 about the root of Jesse, and that that root would, would bring forth a ruler, and now he calls it the root of David. So, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Well, that's quite a relief, isn't it? It's quite a relief. With these seals here, this scroll, God's plan, nobody can get into it, nobody can execute it. Now we have a lion who's going to take care of it. Now we have the root of David 
who's going to take care of it. Now we have kingship. Now we have majesty. Now we have somebody strong enough, powerful enough, to come and execute this plan of God. What a relief. And then John looks again, wipes his eyes apparently, and looks in verse 6, and he says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw a lamb. What happened to the lion? This must have been quite a shock. Maybe even a disappointment. Maybe even a matter for great consternation and confusion. He was just told about a lion. And now he looks and sees a lamb? Aren't those sort of the opposite in terms of creatures? And and in addition, this was not just a lamb, but it was a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So, weaker still, a lamb, but not only a lamb, but a sacrificed lamb, a lamb that had been slain. What happened to the lion? But there's a curious thing about this lamb. He had been slain, but he was standing. So, He had died, but he'd come to life again. And not only that, he had seven horns, and horns represented power. Seven eyes represented insight, perception, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So those seven spirits are before the throne of God, and they're also sent out by this Lamb of God. So the one who sits on the throne has these seven spirits, the Holy Spirit. This Lamb, Lion, also has the Holy Spirit to send out. And here we find this lamb. Now the lamb, that was a common image from the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, you find that lambs were always getting what? They were always getting slain. They were always getting killed. Why? Well, because humans had sinned. And the price of sin was death. The penalty of sin was death. And somebody had to die, but... There was this sacrificial system set up temporarily during the Old Testament times in which substitute animals were sacrificed for humans. But there's something incongruous about that because the animals themselves, they did not sin. They themselves were innocent and they were not sinners, but they were sacrificed in the place of sinners. And then when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here we have the central message of the Bible, the Christian faith, and we have its, if we could call it paradoxical, sort of contradictory or at least surprising message. We're looking for somebody who can execute God's plan. Somebody who's strong enough, who's mighty enough, who's powerful enough to execute God's plan. And then we're given a lamb who was slain and who rose again. Well, what's the message? The message is this. The way in which God executes His plan for the ages is through the death and resurrection of His Son. 
Now, even Paul recognized that there's some tension there that's so surprising and, and so against how we might think how God should execute His plan. We think God should execute His plan according to the vision in chapter 4. We think God should execute His plan if He's going to show up as God by coming in with, with thunder and lightning, with awe and shock and, and mightiness. But that's not how He comes. He comes as a lamb who let Himself be slain to take away the sins of the world. That's how He executes His plan for the ages. And Paul talks about this. How easy it is to miss because it's so shocking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21-25, to it's on page 1054. Paul begins to ask the question, where is the one who's wise? Who's got it all figured out? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's he saying here? He's saying it's easy to miss what God is doing because the Jews are looking for might. They're looking for powerful signs. And the Greeks, the the non-Jews, are looking for philosophical wisdom. And what does God give us? He gives us a cross. He gives us Christ crucified for us and risen again. And Paul says, we're not going to preach worldly power. We're not going to preach worldly wisdom. We're going to preach Christ crucified because Christ crucified is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. All who believe. And that's the invitation to all of us to believe in the Lamb who was slain, to believe in Christ who was crucified and rose again. And we would never dare to talk about the weakness of God, would we? But Paul does. He says the weakness of God, what looks like weakness that is, a Lamb slain, a man crucified. The weakness of God is powerful and stronger than anything that humans have ever been able to come up with. And the folly of God, as he calls it, is wiser than all the collected wisdom of men. And we see that in this vision in Revelation. We're promised a lion, and we get a lamb who's able to do a lion's work. Now, I want to show you a detail going back to Revelation chapter 4, uh, rather 5, in verse 8. And it says that he took the scroll from the right hand, verse 7, he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What does that mean? This is the transference of power. This is the one seated on the throne saying to the Lamb, you execute this plan. He gives it over to the Son. 
And then, verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, if I'm correct that these 24 elders were not human, but rather they were angelic creatures, and these, these four living creatures were certainly not human, they were angelic creatures, guess what? John is the only human there. He's getting a glimpse of this. Humans did not dare enter into the vision of chapter 4. The only one who was able to enter into the vision of chapter 4 was this one invited guest so he could write down what he saw. But there were no humans there. They dare not enter and stand before that throne until the Lamb shows up. And now once the Lamb shows up, it says that they have bowls of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. Now the prayers of the saints, the saints are the Christians. Now the prayers of the saints, the Christians are able to ascend before the throne. Now we are able to go before that throne in prayer. Why? Because the Lamb was slain. And the Lamb, by being slain, takes away the sins of the world. Now we, sinful humans, are able to come before the throne. That's why we're taught to pray in Jesus' name. When we pray... We don't show up and say, look at me, look who I am, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, how wonderful I am. We we show up and we say, I am not worthy, but I come in the name of Jesus. He is my intercessor, He is my representative, He is the Lamb who was slain for me, and in Jesus' name, I come to you. And that's why we're told, in Hebrews chapter 7, that He always lives to make intercession for us. We sing that song, don't we? Before the throne of God above. I have a perfect plea because as a great high priest, He intercedes for me. Now the rest of the chapter, now that the Lamb has shown up, we had a restricted worship service in chapter 4, but now it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Why can it get bigger and bigger? The Lamb's there. And now it gets bigger and bigger. The the worship service begins as it ended in chapter 4 with the four living creatures and the 24 elders in verse 8. But if we go down to chapter, or rather, uh, verse 11, we find uh, that John looks and he sees that it's getting it's getting exponentially bigger. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads. A myriad is is 10,000. So ten thousands of ten thousands and thousands of thousands, probably millions of angels now join into this worship service. But then, not only that, it gets bigger. And if we keep reading in verse 13, it says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Wow. You can't get any bigger than that. Everybody, everything is there. And the worship now is focused on the Lamb. And we see these songs that were sung to the Lamb in verse 9. Worthy are you 
to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in verse 13, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. By the way, this praise is directed jointly to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You may or may not believe, as I've said, that Jesus is God, but there is no doubt that that's how the New Testament presents Him. He is receiving along with God this praise. And what is the focus of this praise? The focus of this praise is what He did. And it explains it even more. It says that you were slain and by your blood you ransomed. This is the word for purchased. You purchased people for God. And which people? Which people did He purchase? He said, you purchased for God from, some from every tribe and language and people and nation. And to make some from every tribe, people, language and nation to be one kingdom, to serve God as priests and to reign with Christ on earth. That sums up what the Lamb did. He's worthy. Because He was slain to take people, even from our tribes, even from our nations, even from our languages, our tongues, even people like us, to make us into one, that we might serve and reign in one kingdom. If we will but believe in that Lamb who was slain for the nations. When... Our girls were younger. One of our chief activities was to read out loud together. And we had some favorite books. One of those books, it was actually a series of three. Somebody was actually, a friend was throwing away books and giving away books, and we picked these up. We never heard of them, but they became some of our favorites. The first one is called Tales of the Kingdom. And there is the, the Enchanted City And the enchanted city has been taken over by an enchanter. And it is darkness and gloom and oppression. And then there is Great Park. There is Great Park where the king lives and where the rangers dwell and where the people who have escaped from enchanted city can live in happiness and in peace. And they have what's called the Great Celebration where they gather together and they focus on this king. Well, the rangers watch out for Great Park and they have ranger towers. And they yell from one ranger tower to another. And this is the, the greeting. This is the code that they use. They call out one ranger to the next tower. And he says, How goes the world? And the response is, it goes not well, but the kingdom comes. That's the sign and the countersign. How goes the world? It goes not well, 
but the kingdom comes. That's the message of the book of Revelation. When we look at this, these scenes on earth, we get distressed and we say, how goes the world? Guess what? It goes not well. We look around our world, our lives, and we ask, how goes the world? And we say, it goes not well, but the kingdom comes. And so the book of Revelation is simply to encourage us and to say, the kingdom's coming. So hold on. Keep going. Don't turn back. Don't deny your faith. Keep believing. Keep walking. Keep following the Lamb who was slain because the kingdom comes. And you know what we need? You know what we need in order to be re-energized, to keep going as the kingdom, as this kingdom comes? We need a glimpse of the control tower. We need to see what's really happening in the universe. We need to be invited up to see what's happening around the throne. And we need to see once again the Lamb who was slain. In other words, we need to worship in order to be able to live. So let's stand and let's join our voices with theirs. Oh